me pongo en, en época, si, si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk, real people, real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement, Jules Dujay, with another amazing show for you today. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because too often we as people, we were labeled and overlooked. But this is no longer our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Today's guest is really special because I've been seeking them for some time. The show has been on my mind for various reasons. And I'll just say that Cadence Petney, pronouns they and them, is a passionate community educator demonstrates commitment to supporting the LGBTQ movement through training, education, and pure love and sheer heart. They hold a bachelor's degree in sociology and women's gender and sexuality studies from Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and the graduate certificate in human sexuality through the University of Minnesota. Upon graduating, They served two years with the AmeriCorps program City Year, where they supported students in an under-resourced elementary school. Cadence's plight for LBGTQ plus programming and initiatives began in the University of Mississippi, doing a wide variety of working involving intersectionality, diversity, equity, and education, especially around the LGBTQ plus movement. These issues and sexual and gender justice are just a few things that they take care of. In their free time, believe it or not, they enjoy thrifting, making art, writing, reading, listening to podcasts, and yes, fussing over the plants. Cadence, welcome. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. This is this is really cool. I don't get to do a lot of things that are exactly like this. So <laughs> we met. I would say about uh, right after the COVID time. Yeah. <laughs> and I was truly impressed with their work and you, the the ability to touch people with this soft voice, but this strong presence. I'm super excited about our listeners getting to hear what I've heard before. Tell us about what their work is right now And how is that journey coming around for that LBGTQ, you know, movement? Yeah. And first of all, I first want to say LBGTQ, and I want people to know that the Q for us will be questioning. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So right now, um, currently, I work as a community uh, educator um, at an LGBTQ plus focused community center. Um, that really means I am just going out a lot of different places in the community. Um, I do a lot of work with K through 12 schools, faculty and staff. Um, I do a lot of work with um, social service providers of all different kinds, a lot of work with mental health care providers, um, and just businesses and companies in general. Um, and I go out and I bring in workshops and presentations around 
LGBTQ plus identities and experiences, um, really with the goal of, again, helping people understand what it is we're talking about or talking about those areas of identity, um, but also as a way to talk about how, why it is so important to create safe and inclusive and affirming spaces um, and how sometimes a little bit of work needs to go into that, um, especially if it's just things that we're not used to doing um, as well. So I, um, you know, as you read my, my bio, I have, you know, an academic background um, in, in this stuff. Um, I'm very passionate about, you know, the academic side of this work, but for me, um, and that's, you know, why I've gone into kind of the education field of advocacy. But I think for me, those two things, kind of approaching it from like a learning, education, um, academic perspective has always been completely intertwined with my own um, queer identity. And queer is just the word that I feel the most comfortable using for myself. Um, I feel it fully encompasses just all of the aspects of my own identity. I like that people don't know exactly what I mean when I say it. And I also really value the, the reclamation aspect of the use of that word, um, which I know it makes some people feel uncomfortable, but um, the reason that we hear the community use the word queer a lot is because we've reclaimed it. Um, we've said, this is our word now. Mm -hmm. We use this for us, how and when we want to. Um, and I like that I can say it and you know keep some things for myself because my work involves being very open about my own experiences, um, which I'm very passionate about. I think when we're talking about personal topics, they have to be personal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how we get people to, to really understand and take that in. Um, so for me, coming into my own identity and experiences, because I was doing that kind of at the same time, I was taking it all in from this very academic perspective. Um, those things have always just kind of been super enmeshed for me. They feel one and the same. Um, so I was learning about who I was and how I felt at the same time I was kind of beginning peer education um, and really talking to people about these things as well. Um, so I identify as non-binary. Um, uh, so I can explain that that means. So, right, we all kind of grew up in this culture where we think of gender and sex, right, as being very binary, where we have the boy box over here and the girl box over there. Uh, I'm talking with my hands, <laughs> so I'm making two little fists, um, you know, and then these things that we think gender is like, those are the two boxes we get. We either are in the boy box or we're in the girl box. They're super distinct from each other. They don't touch and interact. It's always easy to tell who fits in what box. And they're just very separate experiences. Um, I found when I always, you know, I had a childhood in which I didn't really think about gender a lot. I was, you know, very lucky to have, you know, parents who didn't put kind of gendered expectations on me in a lot of different ways. Uh, but it, as I started getting older, especially, um, you know, hitting puberty and was being referred to this language like girl or, or even woman or lady, that just always did not sit exactly right. And I was just mm -hmm. like, why does that feel strange? Why is this not working out for me? Because I knew I wasn't a boy. That was not something that resonated with me whatsoever. But those are the two options we get told that we can be. We either can be a girl or a boy. Um, and most of the time, you know, we can't even switch out of those two if we feel like maybe people got it wrong about us. So I was just kind of for a long time, especially again in my early to late teens, was just like, okay, I guess this is just the way some people feel. It seems to be just the way I feel about being referred to this way. Um, and then I met other people um, when I started college who identified as being non-binary or being transgender. And 
it was just like, wow, <laughs> such a relief to have a word to describe my experience. And then at the same time, I was also finding a lot of strength in allyship and advocacy. So that's a little tell bit about a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, tell us a little bit about that journey, the walk, because I think mm-hmm. everyone's story is unique in so many ways. And I think that learning about yourself and people learning about their own experience is different for everyone. Yeah. How was it for them? Yeah, I, yeah, so I struggled. I was dealing with a lot of mental health stuff. I kind of was through middle school and high school, but things already were, were really hitting ahead by the time I got to college. Um, and I was having a really hard time um, and hadn't, wasn't able to like put words or language to that. And I, and there was a lot of things I was experiencing. Um, And then another thing I want to say is, um, you know, I also, there are some people in some situations where people are telling them they're bad or wrong, but these were just feelings that I didn't know how to express whatsoever. And I was keeping inside because um, I do not blame my parents or my family or anyone for not explaining these things to me because they didn't, know them either right um Mm -hmm. so that's another big piece that I think about a lot but um but yeah I was I was really having a hard time um with like depression and anxiety and things like that and it was again going to college where things were were really hard for a while but then meeting other people who had identities and experiences that I really resonated with and realizing that I could take that energy um into talking to other people about these things um and helping them explore, um, because as I've been doing this work since I was around 17, 18, which is like about 10 years now, I find that pretty much everybody is having a hard time with gender expectations. Pretty much everyone is having a hard time with the expectations that we put on relationships and how we should feel about each other. Nobody, whether they're straight or cisgender or not, is having an easy time with this. So really being able to talk to people about that and really just have the conversation of this is easy for nobody. And the more we talk about it, the more we make it easier for everybody because everybody deals with stuff around gender. Everybody deals with stuff around, again, what we expect people's relationships to look like and how we expect them to feel um, and act about how they feel and all of this different stuff. Um, So For me, um, really being able to, again, speak to my own experiences, but also really be able to have deep conversations with folks um, and bring new ideas and thoughts to them and things that we don't often get to acknowledge. That was really what brought me to where I am today is like seeing how valuable that was for me and also the people that I'm able to, to talk to. We're super delighted about this opportunity because your story utterly beautiful in that you lay out the work for us understanding first and foremost, it's not easy and it's not going to be easy for anyone who is starting to develop and understand themselves and shout out to the parents, shout out to your parents for that kind of, we don't also understand how things go because I think that when I look at this work, I think about perception a lot and a lot that goes on with this work is that many of us, you know, we see something and we think that this is right. And I can only imagine 
understanding, just like you shared, having one of these two boxes filled. You know, once we hear that, that there's a different viewpoint, it becomes difficult. And I want our listeners to understand that there is a big challenge when there is a given um, perspective and those challenges become different. I can tell you, even growing up in Washington Heights, if we visited the Asian market Mm -hmm. and we will say to the person working there, are you Chinese, Mm -hmm. you know, without knowing. And many a times I didn't understand that until I started growing and developing Mm -hmm. that that was beyond a microaggression. It was insulting them Mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm digging into their culture. I'm digging into their fabric. And most certainly I don't understand what I was saying. And a lot of this goes beyond what a person starts to feel. It plays on them because that perspective that I'm talking about, you don't really know what that person was dealing with until you and them cross. Mm -hmm. And when you finally cross, you add salt to the wound by saying something that may be subtle, but might become hurtful in so many ways. So I'm very grateful for the answer and for helping us understand a little bit about how difficult it is for everyone's experience in doing this. Um, There's a lot of pros and cons to this, but is there anything right now that you're most excited about where the movement is? Um, Because I know that the LBGTQ plus community is stronger. It feels stronger to me. But how do you think the movement is developing? Yeah, I mean, this one is a it's a hard one for me to answer. I think at the moment, um, it's one I've been thinking about as we, you know, we're, we're set up what we were going to be talking about today. Um, so we're at a tough place, especially legislation wise um, mm-hmm. in the United States. Um we, I was just looking at this today to see and, and the number more that have been added. Um, as of, I think I was looking at a, a chart, but as of June um, this year, more than 530 anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced mm. across our country. That's 530. Mm. And most of those bills, again, not all of them have been passed, but these are ones that have been introduced. Um and most of the bills are are targeting transgender folks and especially gender affirming healthcare. Mm. That is an unbelievable number of, of anti LGBTQ laws that people are trying to put in place, and that is unprecedented. Um, and you know, when I was having these conversations with people, especially when I was a student and I was doing a lot of peer education, it really felt like we were on somewhat of a trajectory where people were very much willing to listen and we were seeing a gentle progression and things. You know, 2015, when I was in my junior year of college, you know, we saw the pass of, you know, marriage equality, right? There were things that were happening mm-hmm. that were, we, they were keeping us on an upward trajectory. Um And it's been an interesting conversation now, especially in the last two to three years, where it really feels like we are, that's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing a gentle kind of increase with people. And I'm starting with a downer. But what I want to add to on top of of that is um, seeing the way that 
not only have we shown up for each other in our community, um, because also, as you were even adding in these other conversations of like, you know, things you used to say to a kid, this is a deeply intersectional conversation. Um, mm. So there are things that I can walk around um, and do and have the privilege to do as like a white queer person that my community of color does not. Um, so I have a ton of privilege being able to do that. And, you know, having to face homophobia and transphobia on top of racism, there's mm-hmm. things going on there. It's a deeply intersectional conversation. So seeing the way that people in our community and our allies, which we deeply need and we need more of, um, have shown up for each other, have used their privileges um, for people who don't experience the same kinds of things they experience and say, we are here because this is a fight that we are all in for similar reasons. I think seeing the way people have shown up for each other under this kind of immense pressure and this big moment that we're seeing right now is something that really resonates with me. Um, I frequently, I go to art, I go to film and media and the things that people make as a way to see people make beautiful things when they're talking about things that are painful. And I think that's a way that I really process. And I think a lot of people in our community process. So we make art, we, we go dance because that's what we can do. That's something our community has like always done as we go out and we're we're in all force together and you know we we are standing with each other. So I think about like those moments of like joy as well in all of the stuff that we're we're seeing. And you can see here, I'm getting a little choked up talking about it. And this is your platform. You are more than welcome. This is your show. And for me growing up in New York, and we often travel to Soho and the village you know, in learning before I even became a social worker, before I even thought about helping communities, I looked at the happiness, the togetherness that this community brings. For me, I always look at this from a strengths um, perspective. The media to me plays pros and cons to this. It's almost like watching the news. You begin to watch and the parts that you kind of see are the ones you take away. What did you last remember? I'm very saddened about the downer number. In that 500,000, I'm just wondering how many people are being forced to be part of that and not be at risk of losing their jobs? How many of them have to play part of this Mm -hmm. to add to that label, to that disenfranchising that they must go against their own beliefs because they're not ready yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying and they're very sneaky it. too. Like they sneak them in and they make them sound real sneaky, right? Everyone of course wants to do things that protect children. Everyone wants mm-hmm. to do things that are for that. And that's how they sneak that stuff in. They say things that are really not true. And, and, and of course you hear, Oh, this will protect kids. And you immediately, everyone is like, yes, we want to do that, but we're not actually listening. First of all, to what kids are talking about protecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they make it real sneaky also as well, which makes it really hard for us to even understand what people are trying to do. Even if you are someone, right, as you're saying, who works on these bills, right? Mm-hmm. You're having to, you're being asked all the time to to compromise your own thoughts and values to earn a living, which again is also another issue in this is we all, you know, class, class inequality is all over the place, you know, when it comes to these issues too. To me, these are some of these challenges, you know, these views, You know, people land on their own conclusions, but the impact is how we land on our own. You know, these different ideas and these different views. I think that, and I always say this as a Latino growing up, 
I wonder what the world would be if all of the Latinos were to unite from all of our third world countries and the Caribbeans to see how powerful we can be. How different I think life would be if we ever were to take that step. And I'm wondering just because when you have this, this sort of uprooting, you laid out some positives about this, but there are still some challenges. Tell us a little bit about the challenges of educating others about this movement, because you're sharing with me and I'm listening and our audience is now listening. And for those parents who are there with their children who are learning about their own identities, stay focused, be calm, give them space. Let's start there. Tell us a little bit about some of these challenges when you have to educate others about this movement. Yeah, I think sometimes it's honestly the hardest thing is always people's willingness to learn. Um, and another thing I've noticed in the last couple of years, it's, it's always I've always had these people who have come to education sessions or again, a lot of times my work right now, people are asked to be there um, by their place of work. That can often be a weird setup because you're required to be somewhere to listen to information that you might already be really unsure about. Like that's not always the best situation um, to put people in when it comes to learning about this stuff. And then of course, when you hold sessions that are community sessions, cause I do that frequently as well. Um, then who shows up to those sessions? People who are already thinking and talking about this, right? So it's kind of a, a weird balance to try to get to. But I would say, honestly, the hardest thing is when people come to a session and they have already decided what I'm going to say and what mm -hmm. it is going to mean to them. Right. Um, there's, it's really, really hard to get anything across if you can't even listen to what I have to share. I've added, honestly, in the last year or so, because I've noticed kind of such an uptick in this, or at least people who are being vocal about it, I've added like a little disclaimer, even at the beginning of like, listen, my role is about sharing information with you. I cannot tell you what to go and do with this information when you go home, right? That's not something I can, I can do. So I think that's the hardest thing. And also people... There's so much misinformation out there. There's so many myths out there, things that are really not true that are becoming very, very, very popular and are not the reality of a lot of different needs of LGBTQ plus people, especially trans people. This, mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that are just not true that are being shared around all the time. And again, when people have already decided that they believe something that's not true, it's really hard to share new information with them as well. So I think that's the hardest thing is just people not even having the capacity to listen and having already decided what I'm going to say and what it's going to mean to them. Well, friend, don't be discouraged because when they come out, aside from that killer smile, <laughs> educate people to the end. I am so happy about that work because we have to play these roles that yeah. we come in predisposed. And that, again, is what we're talking about. This perspective is almost as if some guy cuts you off in traffic. You get upset immediately. Why did you cross me? You know, and then you don't know if that person, his wife is pregnant, about to have their first child, some family members in danger. Now, when it's you who jump into the highway and someone honks, you're like, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. So again, that perspective taking to me is vital to this work because I do understand that there's a lot to be known about people 
when they think they know what you're going to say. Yeah. But those that have sat down and have listened to what they say is just amazing. To me, you know, there's a ton of celebrations. I want to keep this upbeat because I think that the positive movement to me is gaining traction. I want to celebrate, you know, that national coming out day, October 11th. There's some talks about, you know, how this was built. But tell us why this is important. Why is that day important? Yeah, well, coming out refers to the act of sharing that your gender or and or sexuality is, is different than what people would expect or our culture sees as the norm. So that's really what coming out means. Um, and coming out day is is a celebration of that. It's a way for people to feel like they have a real avenue to share something that's really, really important to them about their identity. Um, mm-hmm. Having a day to do it on is really helpful, especially for, for younger folks. It's a way of feeling empowered, you can um, share an experience with people and know that other people are going through similar things on the same day that you are. And it's a really a way to provide support. Um, and it's also, again, a way of recognizing that, um, and this is something, honestly, that a lot of young people have shared with me. I think a lot of young people, and this is something that people have kind of always talked about, but sometimes when I'm talking to younger folks, um, especially middle school, high school, often the response that um, they're saying to me these days, which I find is really interesting. And it was sort of a conversation that people were having when I was younger, but I feel I'm hearing a lot more. So like, well, why would we have to come out? You know, why does everyone assume that I'm straight unless I explicitly say otherwise? You know, why does everyone assume that I'm cisgender if I explicitly say otherwise? So I think that's an interesting change that we're seeing. And again, it's something people have kind of always said, but I think with like, Gen Z that there's kind of a little bit more of a conversation there, which I think is is really, really interesting. I've even seen, um, you know, kids who have friends who are allies who, so their friend doesn't feel like they have to come out, they will say something like, well, I'm coming out as straight, or I'm coming out as cisgender as a way to support their friend, um, who is coming out as something who has someone who's not straight or someone who's not cisgender, they do it as a way to like support say, why do you all make him feel like he has to do it? Why do you all make her feel like she has to do it? Like, let's all do it, you know, as a way to kind of be really supportive. So um, coming out day is, is really, really helpful and really, really important for a lot of folks. Um, again, people come out every day of the year, um, but having a day for it is something that is really helpful, especially, I think, for younger folks. Yeah, big up towards that movement. I'm very proud because Hunter College, one of the colleges that I was a student of, we were the first all-gender bathroom. So I'm super excited about that because I think that that was one of the first moves that began to bring equality into schools. And I think that that's something that is important when we talk about once a positive entity makes a move, the dominoes begin to fall. And I think that that, you know, supports us in some way. So when we, when we move towards education and outreach, you know, what are the things that we need to do? within our school spaces. I know that this movement, we had the sign, there was signage, there were students who were comfortable making the movement, we some marches, some petitions. What are, what are some of the things that we can do to support this work in our jobs, schools, and in sports, we have begun to see that. What do you, what do you think those are? Yeah, I mean, I love right away that you're bringing in the signs and symbols um, because that is honestly, is so helpful. 
um, young people, especially myself, I am looking for pride flags. I am looking for things like that everywhere I go. Um, and it automatically makes me feel so much more comfortable entering and being in a space if I see something like that. But young people, kids especially, are looking for those signs and symbols. Um, so I worked in an elementary school for two years. I was with an AmeriCorps program called City Year. Um, and it was, a, it was a weird time. It was, you know, I wasn't a full-time, technically a full-time staff member at the school, even though I was working 60 hours a week, you know, an AmeriCorps program. It was a lot of work. I was full-time in a classroom. Um, and I was in third grade. I was, I was fifth grade. So this wasn't something that was necessarily going to be something that would be safe or effective for me to, you know, talk about at the school that I was at. What mm -hmm. I did, though, was I had a little rainbow sticker on my water bottle that was probably an inch around. It was this little sticker. So many kids came up and talked to me during my two years at that school um, because they saw that sticker that was probably an inch around. So do not underestimate what people are going to notice, especially young people. They mm. will see the things no matter how small they are. So having those things just up and around, kids will see that. Um, and you may not even never know that they are noticing that. But those signs and symbols that are honestly just so simple to do, kids will see them. Um, I think also inclusive language is something I think about all the time. Like, do you address your class as boys and girls? Mm -hmm. There's other things maybe we can say. Can we say friends? Can we say folks? Can we say students? You mm -hmm. know, I hear a lot of people come up with like just clever names um, that they call their class. People go by animal names or something like that. Because and also that's helpful because then your kids know you're talking to them because they're mm -hmm. the students in your class. But just thinking about the language that we use um, when we're referring to home. Let's say you have a piece of paperwork or something that needs to go home using inclusive language, like saying, take this home to your grown up, take this home to your adult, take this home mm. to your guardian, because that is helpful, not only for gender related reasons, but we don't know who our kids live with. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a grandparent, maybe it's another relative, maybe it's a foster family. So the way we talk about family and home is so important to be inclusive for other reasons, because even if we don't mean it that way, what is a kid going to hear if you're always saying, even if you just say parent? Um, that's gender inclusive, but if they don't live with a parent, potentially what a kid is going to hear from that is like, oh, my family's not normal. Mm -hmm. Oh, who I live with is not who other people live with. So maybe I can't talk about this. So just the inclusive language aspect of it is so, so, so helpful. Um, and also parents see that. Another thing I often notice is, or caregivers see that, is, is so often the reaction will be, oh, well, if we say we're explicitly inclusive, everyone's going to get mad and upset. If you say you're explicitly inclusive, think about how many people are going to want to go to your school, are going mm -hmm. to want to go to your organization. So many people are looking for that. So I always find there's kind of like a real scarcity mindset or people are worried about the people who are going to be upset about being safe and inclusive. It's like, think about all the people who are desperately looking for a place like that and will want their kid to come see you at your practice or want your kid, want their kid to go to your school. Right. Um, so there's honestly so much of it is just so simple. Um, is these small signs and symbols and the language that we use. You know, to add into the support piece, I think that when I'm hearing information such as a student shares something in particular, you know, just listening to the information, because again, the learning about the coming out piece is different for everyone. And many a times, depending on race, you know, demographics, et cetera, a student may have that struggle. And if they trust 
you with such information, I'm telling providers, just be mindful and just be careful and just listen. Because students many a times will tread in one direction and change their minds. And many of us who have this information, once it becomes available, we should be careful in not judging the student. The student can make up their mind. They're saying this, they're saying that. If we don't understand it, it's just be the best way is to just listen. And sometimes listening means not responding, just listening. And I think that that's key to help support students and learners and even families, because listen to the family piece, it's very difficult for families to get this information and say, well, I didn't expect that my child would ever say such a thing or such thing. So we have to be careful um, when we take this information and how this is being used from the um, provider you know, standpoint. What are some strategies that you think a family member you know, can utilize when they have suspicion or they're thinking something, but they're still struggling with that piece? What do you think families can do? Yeah, I think um, I'm honestly a huge piece of it. If someone comes out to you, especially a young person, truly all you need to do is listen. You know, there's really nothing else you need to do at that point. Um, really, all if you want to say something, really the only thing you really need to say is like, oh, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Because exactly as you say, it's an immense sign of trust. Um, and 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 that they that they feel that they can tell you that. So that's really all you need to say if a young person comes out. Um, if you feel like you're seeing signs and symbols and and things like that, I think it's continuing to, you know, just be be subtly supportive, right? Again, even if you're not someone who works in a school or, or works with youth, right? You can do the little signs and symbols things too, right? Do you? Um, you know, think about, you know, the comments that you make if something related to LGBTQ plus stuff comes up on the news or on TV, like what, what are you saying? How are you acting when those things happen? Because kids especially are, are reading that stuff. They're, they're kind of watching you um, when those things are going on. So, you know, thinking about, you know, the things that you say and do. Um, also, a huge thing that I think is so incredibly important um, is, as, as you say, like kids are kids are always going to be in some way different than we expected them to be. Maybe it's not going to be about their gender or sexuality, but it's going to be something. You know, maybe you thought they were going to be an athlete and they're like the best artist ever. You know, maybe you thought they were, you know, going to do just you, kids are people are people and they're mm-hmm. always going to be different in some way than we think they are going to be. Um, and maybe, maybe gender sexuality is a piece of that. Um, so I think thinking about it that way also helps take the the pressure off as well. Um, you know, something I have also found I'm consciously saying to people um, is if they come to a training session or an event, um, I will say, do the people in your life know that you just spent an hour, hour and a half at this session? And so sometimes saying something as simple as that, you know, something I consciously find myself saying, especially when I go talk at schools, is I say to them, I was like, do your students know what you do when you have professional development days? Do they know? Because oftentimes they're, you're sit, sitting there spending time talking about things like social emotional health. You're sitting there, you're talking about things like identity and how to support students who, you know, have identities that our culture sees as something that we don't talk about. Like, do your kids that you support know that you're having these conversations? So sometimes even a sentence of like, oh, I went to this workshop or training today. Um, that that will be there. The kid will mm-hmm. hear that. Um and I think also another thing that I that people frequently share with me is like, 
I'm being so supportive and I really think my kid is LGBTQ plus and why won't they come out to you? Because they're just not ready and that's not on you, right? They mm -hmm. will share that information when they feel it is something that is important for them to share and you can be doing everything right and a kid can still not be be ready to share that information. They're figuring it out themselves. So I think also people put a lot of pressure on themselves of like, I'm doing everything right. You know, why isn't my kid sharing this aspect of my identity with with with, with me, like, um, or their identity with me? And it's like, well, first of all, middle school, high school, especially that age, they don't want to talk to you about a lot of stuff in general. Um, mm -hmm. So they're, they're going through a thing. They're trying to figure out how to be their own people in a lot of different ways. So I think also, um, and also, talk to other parents and caregivers. Um, there are local PFLAG chapters. Um, we have one in um, in Norwalk and there's one in Stanford and there's there's stuff, there's always gonna be a local PFLAG chapter at least near you and PFLAG is an organization that's national, I believe even potentially international that is a specific organization for peer support for parents and caregivers and relatives of LGBTQ people, of LGBTQ children. And some people mm -hmm. have kids who are adults some people have kids who are very little and it's just parent and caregiver peer support. Um, and I super recommend them because it's really hard to go through this and have no one to talk to. Um, so super recommend peer support for parents and caregivers as well. Yeah. So please share that information. I'm planning to put that up on our uh, website. You know, what, one of the biggest challenges for me for this and, and is where it gets very difficult for me is the bullying side of this. Um, it is extremely difficult. And sometimes, as you mentioned, a teacher in charge, an authoritative person may unexpectedly, you know, say girls, boys, and so on. And people are already uncomfortable just hearing that. But it's very hard to like say something. But in those instances is when two or three friends who may suspect, share a joke, everyone laughs, and now it's extremely difficult. So I think that that's what you were referring to when you talked about, let's use safety words so that no one has to be identified or caught in some sort of conversation, but bullying. This is one of the most scariest parts for children, adults alike, who decide to live their lives their way. What can you tell us about this difficult area? Yeah, I mean, again, I think the hard thing about a lot of this is that a lot of it is microaggressions, a lot of it is unintentional, right? So when someone says things like boys and girls, I know they don't mean that automatically is something that's intended to be inclusive because that's normalized language especially you see that kind of gendered language happening at the younger levels right boys and girls is very normalized language to talk to you know preschool elementary school early childhood um but you know again when we use language like that if there's a kid who doesn't feel like they're a boy or a girl they're going to feel excluded from that situation so also the ways we correct those things right so this is something i did myself um which is you know i really found even as someone who's non-binary myself, when I worked with kids full time, I really found I was slipping into that boys and girls language a lot. Or you mm. guys, I grew up in New Hampshire. <laughs> to me, you guys is gender neutral, but you know, not to everybody that is as well. So I said something to my, my third graders. I said, hey, I'm trying not to say boys and girls anymore. I'm trying not to say you guys anymore because not everyone feels seen by that. 
Mm. And that's all I said. I didn't go into any more detail. Um, and, and first of all, that's the other thing. I think we worry we have to explain every little thing to kids. We really don't. I mm. really didn't have to say any more than that. And the other thing that I added to that, as I said, you can call me out if you hear me say it. Guess who loves calling you out? <laughs> Nine-year-olds. <laughs> the so, truth seekers, yeah. Yeah, so they held me accountable. And I also noticed even their language was changing when they were talking to one another as well. So you can let them in on these things. And again, if I've already made a mistake and made a child feel not included, I don't have to call it out or name that child specifically. I made a general just statement to my, my group of kids um, and they got it. I didn't have to do any more explaining than that. Um, and that is honestly the best way to respond to mistakes is just to generally address them and to leave yourself open to be corrected with like just this empathetic accountability. In terms of bullying, um, as of right now, especially in Connecticut, um, this is it's protected under Title IX. So if a kid is being bullied related to something to do with their gender identity, their gender expression, um, this you know their racial identity, anything about their identity and who they are, that is protected. So that shouldn't be happening um, as well. So you have avenues to go through if it is that serious as well. Another thing that I often think of when I add to this, um, so the Trevor Project, which is a national organization, um, which many folks might already be aware of, that focuses around LGBTQ plus youth mental health. Um, mm -hmm. They do a lot of research and provide a lot of good work. The number one thing that they find that has the biggest impact on, you know, helping LGBTQ plus young people not deal with high rates of severe mental health issues is having support at home. That is the biggest thing that we can give kids. Hmm. We cannot protect them all of the time when they are out learning how to be their own people in the world. So it's found that having support at home is the biggest thing that they can have. If they don't have that, then the next thing is where they spend the most of their time, which is usually school. So that's the next big factor that we need to focus on as well, but home support. Another and some, so something I want to share about this, because this is something that I hear all of the time. And the way I've ended up describing this is honestly a conclusion I came in to in my own talks in my own therapy. <laughs> so the reaction that I often get from folks is I do not want my child to be LGBTQ plus because I see the way the world treats LGBTQ plus people. Mm. When you say that, even though it comes from a deep place of wanting to protect your child and wanting them to not go through something else. Cause this is another thing I frequently hear from people who are already dealing with the world, treating them differently for something else about their identity. I often hear this the most from those people, um, you know, folks who are of color, um, folks who, you know, deal with like income inequality. Oftentimes this is that thing like we already going through this. <laughs> I can't also have you be going through this, right? That happens all the time. A way that I've ended up describing it to people is when you say you don't want your child to be LGBTQ plus because of the way the world will treat them, you are joining the circle of the people who are making it harder for them to be in the world. Mm. So the biggest thing, again, we cannot control the way other people in the world are going to treat the young people in our lives, our children. We cannot. The thing that we do have control over is supporting them at home. And that, again, has been founded over and over and over in comprehensive research as the best thing that we can do. 
I think that's beautiful. I also think that you shared earlier, when you feel that you're outnumbered parents and you feel that there's not many places to turn, there are. There are many places worldwide that you can find supports. And I think when you connect with other parents who are going through this plight with you, um, there's something to be said about that. It's therapeutic for the parents, but also for the students who are now learning more about themselves and about the potential unsafeties that the world has aligned up for them. Is there a student or students that you can think of that they say to themselves, this is a case that just pushes me to do this work. Because of this case, I push and I push and I won't give up. Is there such a case for you? I mean, so many of them. Um, so my, my first year with city year, I taught in third grade. Um, and my second year I taught in fifth grade and I was terrified <laughs> to move to the fifth grade. I was like, they are the real deal. I am so scared of you guys. Like they're yep. real, you guys right now. Um, uh, and, and I was so scared. Um, it was the best and the hardest year of my life. Uh, they did not let me get away with anything. They were on it, on it, on it. You know, I was going through also like a hard time that year in general. And I was, I was dyeing my hair all these different colors. I had one student, I would walk into the classroom and she'd look at me and she'd go, no, it's not a good one. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> you know, just like they were so real with me. Like, um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was a fun time. Um, and, and yeah, and so I was, I was teaching, it was an under-resourced area. Um, it was Manchester, New Hampshire, um, which is one of the, opioid crisis capitals of the country. Mm -hmm. um, it was, there was a lot going on for my students that again, being so young, they had absolutely no control over. Um, so I had a student in my class and again, this is another story. And I, I maybe we might potentially get into this as well, but um, something I also frequently hear, I was like, they're too young to know. You know, when I taught in, in fifth grade, you know, they're nine, 10. Um, I had a student who felt safe enough to come out to our entire class and share that information with us. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was because myself and my partner teacher and just our class in general, we had created such an environment there where people felt like they could share those things with us. Um, so I think about him all the time and I, you know, I really, I think, I really hope he's doing, doing well. Um, I have been able to keep in contact since as well. Um, so a lot of the kids, um, I think it's something I, another one kid I think about all the time is when I was still in college, we had just started, I was working at our women's and LGBTQ center at the, at the college that I went to. Um, and we had just started trying to figure out a program to go visit some of the local high schools. Um, and I remember uh, going into that high school and there's a, a kid there that just seemed very unsure of themselves. Um, and we, explained what it meant to be non-binary because it was something that another person who had shared as their identity and so we explained that to them after they asked about what does that mean and they just they lit up they were like oh my gosh <laughs> there is a word <laughs> for how I am feeling so I think mm -hmm. about that student a lot and it's funny so I think about a lot of the kids um, but another thing I think about all the time because it's I do talk to youth sometimes these days, but I primarily end up talking to a lot of adults who work with youth in some way. 
and seeing the way that people will show up for these kids and sacrifice things about their work and their time to show up for these kids, like that gets me. <laughs> that really, really gets me. Um, thinking about all the incredible social workers and teachers. And again, people often taking the time that out of their day when they are so underworked and under-resourced and all of these things to show up for kids. Ooh, that gets me. Mm. I hear incredible stories from people who work with young people. And those ones, yeah. Well, big up to the brave young ones who step up and support this movement, but more importantly, support themselves. It's very difficult, you know, and I think that is a very welcoming place when you are in a safe space and you are willing to share such news. You know, when I think about these biases, the negativity that comes with this, humans, we tend to hold to this, to the negative memories more than we do the positive ones, right? So when you feel threatened, it's like your brain is sending these signals and there's a red alert that goes off, you know, you don't feel safe. And we talk often about fight, flight, you know, if if it's a situation where a child, a teen, feels ashamed or embarrassed, people don't understand how difficult that may be. And I want people to know that many adults have held grudges against themselves because something happened to them in first grade. People do not understand how difficult, and these are people who are working and maybe making nice money or whatever it is that they're doing, but that memory, that tendency, and that's why we have to be careful because these rising numbers in suicide and in, 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 in these areas that are very scary, to me, a lot of them are lending in these areas and I want to make sure that people understand when someone conveys that type of information to you, be mindful and be careful. If you're not going to say anything positive, just don't say nothing at all. Be like those people that they assume that you're going to do that presentation and they're just sitting there because they need to sit there. That's better than saying something that is hurtful. So I want people to listen to that piece because for the parents, it's very difficult if a child has entrusted with their parents their willingness to come out and the parents now have this information and they still don't know what to do with it, how bad must it feel for that family if that child has to encounter these hurtful comments? And I know that the microaggression sometimes comes off as, well, you know, it was a subtle, these are deadly. Mm -hmm. These are just as difficult for me. So thank you for sharing those success stories because I think that they lend to something that is very important and we will still need to learn more. But I thank you for allowing us to at least get a little glimpse of it as we begin to research this topic more. Now, if you weren't doing community outreach for LBGTQ+, what kind of profession you think you would have been? And, and don't say singer or like because I know that you had the hair thing going on, but what what <laughs> what do you think you would have been if you had another career? 
Well, it's funny. Up until I started college, I said my entire life I was going to be a veterinarian. Um, oh. And then that completely switched. So I'm still a big animal lover. Um, so that was, you know, one thing I think where I'm at these days when I think about that um, is I just think about, you know, making art, making beautiful things, writing beautiful things and just having conversations with people. I was joking with a friend the other day that it was like, all I want to do is, you know, make art and have dinner parties with people I love and just read in various places. Um, so, you know, I can I can see that um, kind of being just just my dream, my dream life in general. But in general, I just I love I love talking to people. You know, I love getting to hear from people um, and you know, being able to just just to deeply communicate with people, I think that is just how I want I want to live my life. And I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do now as a community educator without, again, an incredible sense of empathy. And I will tell you, even the people who reacted out in the best ways to the things I have to say, 99.9% .9 of the time, it is because it's coming from a place of their own pain. And that's mm -hmm. why I do what I do as well. Even if I feel deeply for the people that are not always excited and happy to be there because I know there's a reason why. And it's usually coming from a place of their own pain. Um, and part of my role is like making us all understand that we don't have to live like that. <laughs> we mm. don't, we can decide that we don't have to. Yeah, art is a big piece. I think it does help all of us. I'm not an artist, but even doodling helps people mm -hmm. cope and kind of feel steady. On the school side, you know, are there any age frames that you think children fully understand their sexuality or is there like a process about this could you help us understand that piece if possible sure um so data in terms of at least gender identity data from the american academy of pediatrics so you know biggest pediatric association in this country is done comprehensive data research collection and they find that most children have a strong sense of their own gender by ages three to four mm. some 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 research even says two to three so kids know what gender is and what gender means at very, very, very young ages, because this is something that's big and important to our culture. Um, so, you know, one of the things that they ask kids a lot of times, especially in like pediatric appointments is like as a way to judge their, um, you know, just comprehension is like, are you a boy or a girl? So kids report on this information at very, very young ages, right? So we're already asking kids this. We only tend to think it's a big deal when Someone says there's something other than what we would expect them to be. But kids know what gender means at very, mm -hmm. very young ages. Um, there's also data, and I'm forgetting the exact numbers, but there's data from um, the Pew Research Center, which is, again, one of the biggest research centers in this country, um, that says that most people understand their sexuality or know that their sexuality is something other than straight um, by, I think it's ages at least 12. So most people know by the time they're 12 or before then that they're, even if they don't have exact words that they're not, you know, exactly straight. And then some, some there's a small percentage that knows even before then um, mm -hmm. as well. So again, this is, these are areas of identity that are, are big and important and that a lot of people are very aware of, right? We don't make a big deal out of it when like a little boy has a little crush on a little girl. Like that's very normal to us, you know, how mm -hmm. old they are. So mm -hmm. of course, Queer kids exist in that way too. Like they'll have little crushes on each other and it's not going to mean the same thing that it means when they're like 16, but you know, mm -hmm. they like them. They want to get married on the playground or, you know, all of this different stuff, you know, that kids mm -hmm. do regardless of, you know, sexuality or how they feel. So there's another thing I think is so interesting is we, we act like this is new information to children, but really they can self-report on it at, at very young ages. <laughs> 
the geniuses that these children really are. Friends. They tell us the truth all the time. Mm-hmm. Before, before we let you go, friend, um, the floor is yours. What do you want our listeners to remember about the movement, about what they are doing, about what to support? The floor is yours. Yeah, I think, uh, and this is something that I share all the time, um, because sometimes especially when I'm coming in and my title is like educator and all this stuff, people think I'm going to be able to hand them a rule book and say, this is what you do in every single situation that you'll ever be in for the rest of your life. We're talking about human beings and lived experience. There is never going to be a rule book of like what everyone is going to need. Um, We know that that's not true of ourselves. If, you know, I was treated the same way every single day when I was having different feelings and different needs, like that wouldn't work out for me right? It really wouldn't work out for any of us. So I think it's realizing that we are always going to have more to learn forever and ever and ever. And that is what is going to set us up for the most success. Um, If we are open-minded about that, um, also um, believing other people in their experiences, you know, even if we can't exactly relate, believing that 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 person's experiences, regardless of how old they are, and we can you know, support them and love them. And, and that's honestly what's most important. You do not have to know what every single things mean. Boy, do the kids love to come up with new terms. They'll come and they'll say this. They're like, you're going to have to explain that one to me. I don't know what that means. As long as you're asking questions in this open way of, hey, share more about that with me if you want to know more about that. So being open-minded, being willing to learn. Um, and again, I think just that fundamental piece of when we create safe and inclusive spaces, that is better for everyone. <laughs> It's better for everyone and it's what we all deserve. Because again, when we feel weird and bad about it, it's usually because it's coming from a place of our own pain and we don't deserve to feel that way either. Mm. Beautifully put, friend. And like Cadence is saying, there is no rule book. There's no right or wrong. We are starting to see this movement take shape, whether we want to believe it or not. We're seeing the pronouns behind our names. People are identifying whether they're straight or not. And they're allowing people to kind of do that freely. Let's continue to push that bar. Let's continue to be free about how we feel. Because again, some of this is not something we buy into. It's something that identifies who we are. And on this platform, I want to remind everyone that we do this work because too often we as people, we get overlooked and labeled. But this is no longer our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in friends to another He's Just a Social Worker show coming real soon to a town near you. We out. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa. This is dedicated to you, mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde de la Rosa, esto va dedicado a ti, mamá. Te extraño mucho.